Oaks Ames Symposium, Stonehill College, September 21st. Our first speaker this afternoon is Maury Klein, and he will speak on Oaks and the Credit Mobilier. Well, hello and, and welcome back again uh, for our second half, two speakers this afternoon. And uh, we have the, uh, the Ames Monument is up on the screen, which uh, sort of is, is a nice melding of uh, art and business. So we, we thought that would be an appropriate, appropriate image. Um, our next speaker is Maury Klein. Uh, Maury is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Rhode Island. He is the author of 18 books, along with many articles in publications ranging from scholarly journals to Sports Illustrated, essays, book reviews, and more recently blogs. Maury has an international reputation in business and economic history. His three-volume history of the Union Pacific is widely regarded as the definitive study of the road. He has won numerous awards, including an Emmy in 2014 for best writing of a documentary. He has also authored books on urban history, the coming of the Civil War, the stock market crash of 1929, the steam and electric revolutions, and has a forthcoming work on how America mobilized for World War II. In college, Klein kindled a love of theater while enjoying a career acting in university and other productions. He also served for four years as chairman of the University of Rhode Island's theater department. In 2011, he was inducted into the Rhode Island Heritage Hall of Fame. Maury Klein. Thank you very much. Um, the um, World War II book, The Call to Arms, by the way, has been out for a little while, so. As soon as you finish here, just rush right out and get it. <laughs> it's always a treat to be the first speaker after lunch. Everybody has eaten. They settled in. They're waiting for the speaker to lull them nicely into a nap. What I want to do today is <clears throat> try and explain why this kind of myth about the Credit Mobilier and Oaks Ames, which Fred had alluded to in the very first speak, it is something that most people don't really understand because they don't know what Credit Mobilier really was and what it was not. And one of the ways to think of it um, and its effect over time is to think of it as the Watergate of its period in the sense that it became the buzzword for any scandal, for any kind of thing, however trivial. You know, everything now is a something gate. I'm waiting for the first gate gate. But that's what it was. And like Watergate in our time, a lot of people didn't even know what it was. They just knew how it was being referred to. So let me start this story by talking about the relationship between railroads and credit mobilier. If you invested, and this is uh, where Jay set me up nicely, if you invested in Eastern railroads, they existed, they were a proven product, and incidentally, they were shorter, most of them, and therefore, you could reasonably look at them as an investment. The minute you get west of the Missouri River, and bear in mind that this country has a unique thing in that we call them transcontinental railroads, but they only go across that part of the continent from the Missouri River to the Pacific Coast. That's still country that isn't very much settled yet. So if you're an economist, you would say that the railroads that were built there, including the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific, are being built ahead of demand. The business isn't there yet to support them. So their stock isn't going to have a lot of value. And if you were doing one of these railroads, and even before the Missouri River, east of it, very often what the stock was was a throw-in to whatever bonds they could get you to buy, which is where the real source of income was. And I'll be coming back to that later. In the case of the Union Pacific, <clears throat> it was a railroad that was unique in that it had a federal charter, not a state charter. The only other railroad that had such a charter was the Illinois Central. 
And therefore, if you have a federal charter, one of the things it means is that you are at the mercy of Congress and whatever Congress chooses to do or demand of you. And the Railroad Acts of 1862 and 64, which defined what the Union Pacific was or what the Transcontinental Railroad would be, was that legislation. It was being built at a time when, in the end, as we're going to see, everybody assumed there were plenty of resources, and that's one of the myths of today. Well, the government issued bonds, the government issued its own bonds, it gave them this huge land grant, and so forth. That didn't pay for the building of the railroad. What it did, ultimately, was cause more problems in some ways than it was worth. So if you were the people building the railroad, the question is, if you're not going to be able to attract investors right away, how are you going to make money, or how are you going to attract investors? And the answer, not unique to the Union Pacific, widely used and necessary, was the construction company. The construction company was a whole separate entity which would make a uh, contract with the railroad, and the railroad, in turn, would pay them, often in inflated amounts, for the construction work. So that if you own stock in the construction company, you did well, and gee, by coincidence, the same people usually that own the railroad or that manage the railroad also manage the construction company. If you had a management that worked well together and were sound, and the Central Pacific had that, you didn't really need it right away. And the Central Pacific didn't have a federal charter, it had a state charter, and its people were so closely working together, that didn't mean they didn't disagree, but they worked together, that they didn't even make a construction company for the first two, three years of the construction process. The Union Pacific, by contrast, was constantly in turmoil in its management during the construction years, and to some extent afterwards. So what you have are two different entities which eventually go to war with each other in a peculiar way, the Union Pacific and Credit Mobilier. Why did Credit Mobilier get that name? Because one of the flamboyant early people involved in its management, George Train, saw that a, a French company had had that name and thought it would be pretty exotic, maybe to attract investors. What it did was confuse people as to what it was. Therefore, a construction company isn't unusual, and that's an important point to remember. It's absolutely necessary if you're going to get it done. To complicate matters financially, the 1864 law required that the Union Pacific sell its stock only at par. Well, the stock was nowhere near worth par, par being, you know, $100 a share. Most of the time the road was being built, the stock fluctuated somewhere in the low 20s if you could get somebody to buy it. So how do you get around that? Because nobody is going to accept stock at that price for construction except the construction company. So what you do in management is you, you use the stock to pay for the construction at $100 a share, and when uh, Credit Mobilier submits its bill for the work done, that price is inflated to reflect the inflated price of the stock that it has to buy at par. And what that means is that a substantial amount of Union Pacific stock ends up with Credit Mobilier. If this sounds confusing, it's only because it is very confusing. <laughs> and um, I, if you really want the details of how that all worked, it's in my volume one of the Union Pacific Railroad and was a lot of fun to unravel. So that's the basic uh, thing into which Oaks and Oliver went from being an investors to being involved in the management one way or another. The fact that Oaks is in Congress is because of the charter an asset. 
because it means he can be where some very important things are going to take place that will affect the railroad. And if you want a further complication, and I can see you're just thirsting for that, Huntington and the group of Central Pacific people are very often trying to get things from Congress that the Union Pacific doesn't want them to get, and vice versa. Huntington is, of, of the big four, he's the guy in the East, and he's very good at this stuff. He's the kind of guy that would, from his New York office, run down to Washington for a day, do stuff, get back in time to be at his office again to make it look like he'd never been there in Washington. So there's a lot going on in Washington about this. Um, and in the long run, that's what brought the Union Pacific down until they got rid of the federal charter. For our purposes, it meant that Oakes was not the kind of guy who could get involved in the management of the railroad. And as a result of that, it was Oliver who ended up having to be president of the railroad. Not a job he wanted, not a job he was suited to, but somebody had to do it. And the somebody, if he didn't do it, were people who were making a shambles out of the Union Pacific management, namely William Durant and some of his, uh, shall we say, colleagues. So when that fight between the Ameses and Durant and others came to a head, what happened was that Durant got kicked out of the Union Pacific management and ended up still in control of Credit Mobilier. So now you have, in a sense, a tug of war between the two of them. And Durant's one of these guys who just will not let go of anything. And Oliver is one of these guys who doesn't like conflict. So he keeps saying, well, Mr. Durant today seemed to be entirely reasonable doing this or doing that. So perhaps finally it's all behind us, only to go on to the next conflict. And the only reason we know a lot about that, thankfully, is Oliver's diary and how we wish we had a diary from Oaks for these years. Okay. The other element here is that in 1870, early 1870s, the road's um, been built, but there is controversy still going on between all of the warring parties within the Union Pacific. And in 1872, those wars are against a backdrop of scandals taking place all over the country. In July of 72 was the campaign in New York against Boss Tweed. In the fall, and actually leading up to the fall, several of the fights over corruption or alleged corruption in the Grant administration, and what role, if any, did the president play in it? <clears throat> I know that's new ground to us, but, but try to grasp that. There is also a fact that when you hear and read from that period what's going on, the inevitable cliche is how all of these railroad and other industrial people are trying to get what they want from congressmen by bribing them with this or that. What you don't hear is the flip side of that, which was just as frequent, which is how many unscrupulous congressmen use this same relationship to put pressure on getting things from the industrialists. Here's a case in point. Horace Clark, who was the son-in-law of Vanderbilt, was about the third supposed savior of the Union Pacific in the 1870s from a potential financial disaster. Horace Clark uh, wrote down that on a daily basis in 1872, he was receiving at least 100 requests for free passes on the Union Pacific. A lot of those came from congressmen, but not just from the congressman for himself. 
for his family, for his friends, for friends of his friends. And this got to be one of those things that became one of the great lost leaders, you might say, of the Union Pacific at a time when it desperately needed income. Clark instituted in the spring of 72 a new policy to try to stem that. And there was a huge outraged explosion. There was arrogance from some of these people who said he submitted his request for passes as usual, and he said, don't tell me that you can't do this. I know better, and I'm not about to beg. And underneath that was a threat. If you want any help from us, you better keep doing this. So this is not exactly a Simon Pure atmosphere. That's the point I'm trying to make. Where then did the credit Mobilier scandal come from? It broke on September 4th of 1872 from the New York Sun. Let me read you what those headlines said exactly. You know how they did headlines in sort of tears down uh, before you get to the article. Here's what it did in bold headlines. The King of Frauds, how the credit mobilier bought its way through Congress. Colossal bribery. Congressmen who have robbed the people and who now support the national robber. How some men get fortunes. Princely gifts by the chairman of committees in Congress. Well, that'll get your attention. What those headlines were alluding to requires, again, some context. This was the New York Sun. This is September of 72. The New York Sun is a Democratic paper owned by Charles Henry Dana, who desperately wants to see the Grant administration defeated, or who desperately wants to see Horace Greeley elected as a reform president. Horace Greeley, by the way, owns the Tribune, New York Tribune, which soon joins in the campaign against Credit Mobilier. What's the basis or the evidence for what they were doing? Testimony given 15 months earlier in a suit brought by Henry McComb, who was one of the fighters of the inside of the Union Pacific management, alleging this kind of thing. He didn't get money he thought he should have got. McComb's not exactly a, a, a qualifying angel. And that suit was one of those things that dragged on forever with the Union Pacific. There were several of these suits. 15 months earlier. So this is not new information. It's part of a public record of a civil suit. And all of this is broken as if it's a sudden, shocking revelation. The House then formed two committees to uh, essentially investigate. One under Henry Wilson of Indiana, uh, sorry, Jeremiah Wilson of uh, Indiana, and the other under Luke Poland of Vermont. The Senate later formed a committee um, almost after the fact, which essentially found nothing and did nothing. <clears throat> so it's really around the two House committees. Oakes didn't understand what this fuss was about. You've heard a lot of testimony today to him as a man who basically is somebody in front, who takes things at face value, who does what he does. He, who he is is who he shows you. And he didn't understand what this was all about at first. He seemed dazed. He seemed actually confused by it. So he didn't do anything. And he didn't think, more important, he didn't think he had to do anything. The testimony um, before the committees started to get very partisan, because it is a partisan hearing. It got contradictory. It got confused. And in some cases, it got very bitter. But all of it, or a lot of it, sought to point out Credit Mobilier as the real evil behind all of this because it was a construction company and people did not yet fully understand, particularly those who know nothing of the railroad industry, 
what the function of a, a construction company was. So basically, all through the winter of 72 into January of 73, the committee is churning out this hearing. The Wilson Report really doesn't shed much light and it told the public basically what it wanted to hear, that yes, there was evil here, yes, there was corruption, and didn't bother to look into what the facts of the case were very far. If you read that testimony, as those of us who work in this were forced to do, uh, you find um, how incredibly shallow the questioning is and what the, the responses are. So, it's the Poland report, by contrast, was much spicier because it dealt more in personalities. And this, of course, got better headlines. And it delved more into the personalities. Why did those personalities matter? Because some of the people who were accused of taking bribes included the vice presidents, uh, Shiler Koufax, Henry Wilson, um, the Speaker of the House, James G. Blaine, um, James Garfield, who later becomes president, and the Secretary, even the Secretary of Treasury, um, George Boutwell. It's quite an interesting list. And some other lesser known people, some of whom were obviously in Congress. All through this, Oakes never wavered. He was scornful of his critics, he thought the whole thing was rubbish. He didn't say very much. He was not out there defending himself. And it is one of those cases where people were urging him to be more cautious in what he did, what he said. But we had an interesting discussion about two kinds of people who get things done in the world. One of them are the risk takers. And the risk takers are a breed who are willing to go out on a limb, who are, as Oakes was, careless about details, careless about keeping records and that sort of thing, as opposed to those who are very closely attentive to the, the proprieties of the situation and what things look like to other people. This, by the way, was Oliver. <laughs> Oliver was very much like that, but again, he's not the one in that role. And he has surprisingly few comments about this in his diary. The ones he have are fully supportive of Oaks, but it's going on and it breaks in such a way because most of the people in Congress charged or accused of this were starting to portray themselves as innocents. Why, we had no idea we were doing this. We thought we were just making an investment. And we'll come back to that. And when they testified to this way, and this would have been in January of 73, to be precise, uh, January 16th, 73, Oakes listened to this testimony. And at this point, I don't know what they did. So he listened to this January 16th testimony, and, uh, and finally, this engaged him. And then six days later, he came in and he had a memo book. And in that memo book, he had listed a bunch of transactions. He didn't show them these transactions yet, but he referred to them. And he referred to some of the details into them. And what that did was to lead to a host of even more desperate denials. Colfax, for example, pleaded that whatever he was doing, it was because of a family crisis where he couldn't concentrate on this or concentrate on that. And there were sob stories galore. And basically what the Poland report did in the end was it outlined a trail of the most obvious threads, but didn't follow to the obvious conclusion that that trail led to. And that's how it ended up with Oakes having to give an impassioned defense because he came and produced the memo book. 
and he started outlining verse, chapter, and text of who had done what and how they had done it. And that led to even more desperate mea, mea non culpas from the people who were being charged. And they turned on each other, and they turned on us. It got very ugly. Uh, and you can follow this both in the congressional testimony and in the newspapers, depending on which partisan newspaper you choose to read. So on February 25th, Oakes gave up an impassioned defense of his position. I'd like to read you a little bit of that because I think it reveals a good bit about Oakes himself. And he's finally at the point where he's had all of this he wants to hear. He said that I have risked reputation, fortune, everything in an enterprise of incalculable benefit to the government from which the, the capital of the world shrank. That I have had friends, some of them in official life, with whom I have been willing to share advantageous opportunities of investment, that I have kept to the truth through good and evil report, denying nothing, concealing nothing, reserving nothing. Who will say that I alone am to be offered up a sacrifice to appease a public clamor or expiate the sins of others? Now, one of the things he was referring to, two of the things he was referring to, is a lot of those congressmen who allegedly took bribes from Oaks are, first of all, hardly naive. They had been offered Union stock as an investment, I'm sorry, Union Pacific stock as an investment earlier, and had refused it. And the reason they had refused it, they didn't think it was a good investment. But then when the situation clarified and improved internally uh, with, between Credit Mobilier and the Union Pacific, suddenly the stock got more valuable. And again, the details of how that happened are here. But suddenly now they wanted some of that stock. And Oaks obliged. He didn't have to sell it to him, but he had promised before that he would sell them stock at a given level. They not only wanted it, they wanted it at the old price, which was now below the current price. And he obliged. So the Poland report came to the, what I still regard as astonishing conclusion, that Oakes had been guilty of offering bribes, but no one was found guilty of receiving a bribe. You, you can, I suppose, torture that into some sort of thing. But the fact is, nobody except two people, in the end, received uh, censorship from Congress. Oakes was one of them, and he, he never, never got over that in a real sense. And the other one had an unusual role that none of the other congressmen involved. This was uh, Albert Brooks of New York. The reason Albert Brooks was, uh, was singled out was because he was not only a congressman, he was a government director of the Union Pacific. So he had a dual role, which he had ought to have known better, and which he ought to have known um, not to get involved in the you know, taking stock or buying stock in the road, because that's strictly against what union uh, government directors are supposed to do. The uh, board of the Union Pacific, again, by law, had to have five government directors who were supposed to represent only the government's interest and nothing else. He, too, was censured. And they were the, the only two. And after that was done, Congress passed what became known as the Notorious Salary Grab Act, improving its own uh, salaries, and adjourned. <laughs> Virtue rewarded. <laughs> the interesting and, and rather sad thing is, on April 30th of that same year, Brooks died of a stroke. I'm sorry, uh, died suddenly. And on May 5th, not a week later, Oakes died of a stroke. So both of the people who were found guilty 
by Congress. They wanted them expelled, but nobody would buy that, not even the Congress people. So, in a sense, two major issues here. Did, and this was one, by the way, that permeated the, the um, uh, Wilson report. Did the government provide ample resources to build a road? I think the answer to that, uh, and I've made this argument not only here but elsewhere, is no. The government bonds, which many people confuse were just a gift, an outright gift, they were not. They were a loan. Interest had to be paid on them. They were expected to be redeemed, and they were like... Um, they hung over the Union Pacific's finances for really 30 years. What finally happened in the end, when Jay Gould stepped into the Union Pacific in 1873 to rescue it from bankruptcy, which he did, he tried for a decade to get rid of the government debt, to find some kind of arrangement so that the road could control its own finances because there were still venal congressmen after the road, and when he couldn't do it, he finally just left the management and went on to create his own system around the Missouri Pacific. Not until the road went bankrupt in 1893 was the Union Pacific's government debt finally lifted, but it took five years almost of negotiation to get it out of the ledger so that the road could be reorganized. J.P. Morgan's known as the father of railroad reorganization. He tried to do it and failed. Several other bankers tried to do it and failed. And finally, in 1898, uh, a consortium of people, which included the guy who would put the Union Pacific into a whole new era where it would become the most dominant railroad in the country, ultimately, E.H. Harriman. And under Harriman, who became really the model for what a railroad should be in the 20th century. The railroad started paying a dividend. It has never missed a dividend since the age of Harriman. In all these years, one of the very few who during the Depression was still paying a dividend. But that's another story. Everybody said, well, what about the big land grant? The land grant only worked, yes, it was very helpful to have the right of way, but most state charters would give you that as well. But the land grant only worked well if you could sell the land to somebody. And if, first of all, if you get what we would call a title, what they called a patent, to the land. The government office was very slow giving out those patents. So if you look at the ledgers over time, that income from land sales was a very small piece of, of building the road. Most of it came from investment and from uh, the government loans and from the... What they finally did was allow the UP to issue its own bonds as well, so it had both the government bonds and its own bonds to sell. And that's what finally got the road built in the end. So no, it did not have ample resources. And by the way, for those ample resources, it had to give the government special rates all the way through for everything from troops to government goods, so forth. The other fallacy was the horror that the Wilson report shrank from the construction company, as if Credit Mobilier was something new, something different, something that other railroads certainly didn't resort to. And it's true, the old colony didn't, but the old colony had been built for a long time in country where there was already business. But it was nothing new. If you look down the ledgers of Western railroads, you will find almost every one of them had a construction company because that's how you got a railroad built. You may like it, you may not like it, but that's how they found out to do it because they couldn't find any other way. And that, by the way, is one of the ways they help attract the European bucks that did much uh, to build the railroads. Everything after that became a credit mobilier. 
if a scandal broke here or a scandal broke there, it was a mobilier, another credit mobilier. Not quite as fluid as Watergate, you know, for translating. But that's what the papers would allude to, you know. They would never let go of that. It was Oakes's misfortune to be associated with more wrong information and mal, I'll, I'll just say, misfacts than almost anybody else. Whether he created um, any kind of feasible wrongdoing, because one of the problems here, again, that we forget about, there is no clear-cut conflict of interest law that defines what that is. That's going to be a while coming because corporations are so new that practically railroads are almost the only ones who really use them on a large scale because they're the only company. They're the, railroad, they're the, they're the country's first big business, and big businesses need a lot of capital to do what they do. And if your railroad doesn't work after you've built it, you can't just pick it up and move it somewhere else. You're out of luck. So whatever crimes he did or did not commit, they were certainly not out of line with practically everybody else in his category that were doing that. And they were certainly not anywhere close to what some of the venal congressmen who were preying on railroads and I, that's a praying with an E, not an A, uh, had been doing for years. That's why I think it's important that if you want to know who Oaks Ames is, you'll never know if you don't understand the context in which all of this came up and how it played out and what Credit Mobilier was, and more important, what it was not. Thank you. Mm. Happy to take questions. Yes, sir. What role did Abraham Lincoln have to play on this? Well, he's gone by then. He wanted to build it. The original rationale for building the Union Pacific Railroad was we're entering a civil war. We have part of the Union here. We have part of the Union on the West Coast. We need to connect them. So it was dealt with as a military and national necessity. Before it hardly got started, the war ended. So now you have a whole different rationale that you have to fight. You could before buy uh, stock or bonds in the UP as a patriotic duty, if you will. That's gone. That's when the Railroad Act was passed. The, the Central Pacific, under a private charter, was already building. The Union Pacific didn't really get off the ground until 1866 or 1867 in terms of actually building as opposed to organizing. Because the 1862 Act, where this all started, had such unrealistic terms that nobody was interested in doing it. Yes, sir. Cash comes in two things. One is um, the dividends that the construction company paid to its stockholders, who were mostly the same people who were on the Union Pacific Board, but also uh, the inflation of these costs were not just to pay for the stock. They were also for the work itself. So there's another margin above that. Now, this is where it all gets complicated. The government bonds that you could issue, the amount that you could issue per mile, which is how they were figured, depended on the terrain. So that you got one amount for a level terrain 
a slightly higher amount for terrain that started to slope and then a much higher amount for mountainous terrain. So part of it comes in how you persuade the government directors to classify the terrain that you're applying to for bonds. So if you have a trade, just to give you an example, I'm making up of some numbers here. If you have one kind of terrain, the level terrain that pays you $30,000 a mile for construction for each 20-mile section, and you can somehow persuade them that this is really elevated, then instead of getting 30000 uh, a mile in bonds to sell, you get, let's say, 40000 a mile in bond, which gets you a lot more cash to do things with. And when you submit construction bills, you can submit construction bills based on that kind of construction as opposed to level construction. The Union Pacific was uh, in an odd position. It's a totally opposite from the Central Pacific. When the Central Pacific starts building from um, Sacramento, first thing it hits is the mountains. So obviously what Huntington wanted was a very high amount for that. The Union Pacific, by contrast, I mean, once the Central Pacific's over that, it's into the Nevada desert, and that's level. The Union Pacific is level all the way up to the Rockies, pretty much, except for the Black Hills, which was elevated. And so they don't, it's very hard for them to do something, but what you can do, and what Durant tried to do twice, is make the track go not quite as straight as it should to add more miles, because you're getting paid by the mile. And there's a, there was a whole bow in just outside of uh, Council Bluffs in Omaha, which became known as the Durant Pro. When Harriman straightened out the road, that was one of the first things they took out. And when he straightened out the road, he ran it literally right across Great Salt Lake, which incidentally, to come back to Jay's talk, that's why the monument got abandoned, because why do you want to go over all this mountainous area, which is costly, time-consuming, etc., when you can go straight? So the monument was a victim of efficiency, if you want to look at it that way. So there are all these little things like this, that when you add them up, and then you get the interplay of what's going on uh, in the dynamics of each company, uh, I couldn't begin, if we were here until Monday, I couldn't get them all explained to you. But uh, trust me, they found a way to make money, and the, the income that they made was off of dividends, mostly from credit mobilier stock, because UP was in no position to pay dividends. Sarah. Uh, he was long out of it. He had, uh, he plagued the company for Oh, all the way up almost until the gold. Well, actually, all the way up to the golden spike. He was there, taking all the credit he could for stuff he didn't do and not taking credit for the mess he made. But then they finally kicked him out. You know, if Oliver had had Oaks's personality, he would have probably moved heaven and earth to kick Durant out of the company years earlier. But a lot of the problems they had was just that. And, and I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's a, going to be a, a series of talks at the Flagler Museum this winter about railroad pioneers. And I was asked to do one, and TJ, in fact, is asked to do one. But one of the questions was, who were the pioneers? Obviously, they want Flagler to be one because of his work in Florida. but when we came to the Central Pacific had Huntington, um, the um, Missouri Pacific had Gould, but when you came to the Union Pacific, it's not the managers, the guy who really kept driving the railroad physically to get done was Grenville Dodge, the chief engineer. And so he's the one that I recommended to them that they talk about you know, because whatever else happened, 
Nobody in the management would have ever gotten this railroad finished if it hadn't been for Dodge. And that's a, that says something about the Union Pacific right there. Yeah, Fred. Yeah, he, he said that, and what I, this is part of what I mean about his being careless of proprieties. And he also said we wanted influence. Well, you can take that one way as being not necessarily uh, evil, but also you can take it as being you're bribing somebody. And you want to, when you say put the, the money where it will do the most good, you're meaning in part, and here again, it gets complicated. From the Union Pacific's point of view, one of Oaks's major jobs in Congress was not just helping the UP, it was fending off a lot of the legislation that Huntington and the Central Pacific people were putting in uh, that were just outright shams. One of the unsung points here has to do with the fact that where were the two railroads going to meet? Originally, that point was to be established much farther west than it was. Huntington and the Central Pacific crowd kept putting, they wanted to go all the way up to Weber Canyon uh, as a meeting point. And they handed Congress false maps, work already done, um, told lies about where things were about that because who's going to go out there and look? You know, this is, this is really, going out to the West in those days is almost like going to the moon. It's so alien, particularly to Easterners. So Oaks' job is uh, much more complicated than is led on by just this whole business with Credit Mobilier. And when he's talking about influence and where money will do the most good, it's as much against the Central Pacific until um, they finally, at the very end, come to some sort of agreement. Um, that meeting, it'll tell you what the reputation was. Um, and I made this point in my book because I was struck by it. When you look at who went um, to that ceremony, the Golden Spike, nobody of really great influence was there. You know, it's more conspicuous about who was absent than who was there. Neither of the Ameses were there. Dodge was there because he had to be. Durant was there because he's always ready to take credit for almost anything. Um, the Huntington crowd was mostly there from the Central Pacific, but in terms of a national monument that was a major, major undertaking I've compared it not only in my book, but in articles and all. This was the 19th century equivalent of the Moon Project. Because for most Americans, that area out there was as remote and as alien as the Moon. The only difference was you didn't have to fend off uh, unhappy natives. And you can't understand why this was such a big deal until you see that and you see what kind of effect it made and then you look at who came to honor it practically no one if you look in oliver's diary what oliver said basically was um, most cities and boston in particular pretty for poor performance in terms of how they honored this accomplishment so it's one of the landmark moments in American history. I won't say it passed unnoticed, but it certainly did not receive the kind of honoring that it deserved. If you think about how long it would take somebody to go from, say, Chicago to the West Coast, Chicago to San Francisco, what were your choices before that railroad? about 35 days by stagecoach, assuming you could survive the trip, or around the isthmus, assuming you could get across the isthmus without catching the fever, and then assuming a boat would finally come on the other side, or all the way around the Cape and up the other side. When the railroad was done, 
you could go from one to the other in about seven days. Now, that may seem like a long time to us. That was a miracle in the 19th century. And one other great construction device opened at almost the same time, and that was the Suez Canal. You put those two things together and you have two of the landmark construction projects of the 19th century right there. Again, what you think of them, whether you like them or not, they're the facts of history and they're there. Um, building a railroad with that technology in those days was an extraordinary physical feat. Any railroad, but especially one like that. Um, and for that, both the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific deserve plaudits. Yeah, Ford? Uh, not really, because there were some papers that had always called it a boondoggle. But then there were others who said, no, this is going to be a very important thing. And it was going to be very important for a number of reasons, which I won't go into now. But just to give you an idea, uh, to come back to the financial burden, the debt, in the summer of before Credit Mobilier broke, Oliver's main problem as president of the Union Pacific was that $400,000 interest was due on the government loan and for just that quarter. And it wasn't coming in. And where was he going to get it? And several of the, of the um, board members ultimately had to pledge their own credit just to get past that hump. So the finances were not eased, and the whole relationship to the government was still sour, and it remained sour, really down until they got out from under. If you look at today's uh, Union Pacific, which is good investment, it has a Utah charter. It is out of the government, uh, and that's what it got back when it finally got reorganized in 1898. And it had to put itself back together because by then, pieces of it were already falling off for uh, lack of payment. Anything else? Well, thank you very much for being patient. <laughs> Fifteen-minute break. <laughs>